this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. And I am really excited about this because I have Dion Raboin on with me today from Axios. Dion is someone that I read every single morning, and I say that religiously every morning I read the work that he does. Dion is the Axios market editor and author of the Axios Markets newsletter. Prior to Axios, Dion was the anchor of Yahoo's Finance Midday Movers and a global finance reporter covering the bond, equity, and currency markets. He previously covered treasuries, FX, and emerging markets for Reuters. He is also a regular contributor to Marketplace, CNBC, MSNBC, Fox Business, and more. So it is really, really fun to have you on, Dion. There's lots to talk about. Um, And so we're going to dive right in. And what I'd like to do, obviously, I read your background a little bit, but in terms of what you do today, kind of give us a little context. How did you get involved in all this? Yeah, thanks for having me, David. And uh, and also thank you for being a religious uh, reader of the Axios Markets News. I really appreciate that. Um, I got into this actually uh, because after the 2008 uh, great financial crisis, you know, I was uh, a fairly recent college grad. And in the years that had passed, I was like, you know, I'd, I'd read about what had happened and I would talk about it, you know, parties with people brought it up and, and, you know, I'd have my theories and whatnot. But I realized I didn't actually understand at all what had happened. I had no idea what all these things, you know, all these words that people were throwing around, uh, CLAs, CLOs, CDAs, you know, all that stuff that people were talking about, MBS. And I, I, was, I realized that I was saying things and talking about things that I didn't understand at all. And I wanted to change that. So uh, I got a job writing about real estate, actually. Hmm. And the guy who... I basically was kind of ghostwriting for this guy. And he would kind of... He had this idea that he wanted to diversify more from just real estate into you know, how, why are rates so low and how does the Fed operate and all that stuff. And so that mm-hmm. just kind of started this snowball effect of, of learning more and then went on to work at Reuters and really cut my teeth there. And, and, you know, that kind of got me to where I am today. Awesome. And so always love the origin stories of our guests. So let's get into it. There's so much to cover and so little time. Um, and so we are dealing with Things that I, everyone calls, everyone gets an email from somebody else saying, these are unprecedented times. And yes, I too was around in 08 and 09. I was, as an investor, I saw the depth and breadth of the great financial collapse and the crisis. Many called that a black swan event. But however, if you have read about people like Michael Burry and everyone else out there, the data was there. And again, I am of the opinion that the data on the virus was there in early January. However, you know, it might have been misconstrued or the data might not have been necessarily up to snuff. Some say the data was there and you could see things like the R0 and you could see the diffusion of the virus. And when 19% of the global GDP basically shut down, i.e. China, in January into February, I saw that there were some problems and I guess obviously... Not many others did. So let's jump in. So yesterday you wrote that basically what's happening, uh, which is very interesting, is that the virus and the viruses affect everything from supply and demand from macro to micro. 
But I want to dig into some of these narratives that you talked about that it is affecting farmers. And so what is the implications here? What is happening at farmer with the farmers of the United States? You know, is it because everyone is locked in, they can't go to restaurants and they're, you know, basically the demand side is shrunk or what else is at bay here? Yeah, that's the thing that I think is very visible. People see that restaurants are closed. They think, oh, you know, that must be hurting farmers. And and it is. But they're really getting hit on all sides by a number of things that I hadn't thought of before I started doing writing and research for this project or for the story. Um, you also think about, like, you wouldn't normally think retail's closed. Oh, that's going to hurt farmers. But that kills cotton demand. And cotton is obviously a major crop. Um, you think about people not driving and the price of oil just plummeting. Uh, ethanol and corn go into a lot of the biofuels that are in most gasoline. So that hurts farmers as well. Um, also, the, the shift that people are making from restaurants to buying at grocery stores, you've got a system of delivery that's been set up, you know, some crops and some farms go to restaurants, others go to grocery. You can't just reroute those, even as obviously the need for one has spiked while the other has kind of fallen off a cliff. So you've got all these different issues that are all just coming and hitting uh, farmers right now in the agriculture sector. You've also got just plummeting demand for the cost of a lot of things like corn, uh, like different crops, lean hogs, things like that. It's just, as we see, you know, oil gets a lot of the attention because of just the ridiculous numbers that are there. But also a, a lot of commodities are seeing these huge falls in prices and that hurts farmers as well. Not to mention uh, the Trump administration still has not taken off its tariffs on China. Uh, as China went through the the first wave of this coronavirus. That obviously killed demand over there for a lot of U.S. agriculture. Um, a lot of soy, soy farmers had been sending, you know, the majority of their product to China. This just really did a number on that. And so the U.S.-China trade deal, which was supposed to kind of help get farmers back on track from all the damage that had been done from the trade war, that has now been pushed back. So they're just, they're really in a tough spot. And last year, you, you had already seen a decline significantly in revenue, increase in farm bankruptcies, increase in or a decrease in revenue. And and it was just a bad situation already. And now you've got this once in a lifetime uh, pandemic hitting and it's just it's really a bad situation. And so let's dig into a broader macro, because obviously, if you continue to think about what's happening in the farmers and the farmers of the United States, that is fairly upsetting, depressing, and hopefully that they will continue to get subsidized because I know that they have been from the United States government. And so Let's talk about the market uh, acting what I define as irrational. You know, back in February, um, earlier parts of February, if one was to look at the VIX, the volatility uh, levels, uh, I believe the VIX was around 13 or 14. And then obviously, as the market caught up with the virus and the implications of the virus, you saw the VIX hit 2008 levels and 2009 levels. Um and so you wrote about the demand side the other day, especially with data from Bankrate. You know, what is happening on the demand side? For me personally, you know, we are obviously 
staying in lockdown. We are here in New York, and so we are doing our job as good citizens to help our first responders in staying home. But we are ordering uh, from things like Shipped, and we are using Amazon Fresh when we can get a delivery sl- a slot. Uh, we are trying to support our local farmers by some of the startups here in, in, in New York that provide that ability. Um, so everyone is, you know, obviously needs things. They need food. They need milk. They need eggs. They need flour. That seems to be a hot run these days on flour. So what is happening on the demand side? Obviously, we're all home, but we still need things. But what is happening to the demand side? Uh, based on some of the uh, analysis and data that you've been able to pull. Yeah, I mean, you laid it out right there. Demand for things like food, basic staples, that has gone up significantly. People are cooking at home a lot more than they were. Uh, so that's putting a, a lot of pressure on the demand side. Also, you've got folks getting sick in a lot of these meat plants. Uh, so there's there's a whole other story to be written there. But the demand for really everything else, uh, vacation, sporting events, uh, the things that make this economy move has just gone through the floor and there's no telling where it's actually going to stop. Most people have canceled their vacations. They've canceled their travel plans. They've canceled plans really, as you talked about, to leave the house. Uh, Leaving the house and buying you know, wasteful nonsense is what the American economy is based on. Like there's the whole idea of of the American economy is really like you go out and you pay $200 for Nikes because they're Nikes. And then you go spend $100 at Wolfgang Pucks because it's Wolfgang Pucks. And then you go out and you you, you spend $100 on tickets to see the Knicks because they're the Knicks. And you you spend $20 on some popcorn and, and all these things, right? And none of those things are happening. And that is the basis of the economy. I wrote this morning that about 80% of the U.S. economy is the service sector, whereas China, they're still kind of transferring to get there. Um, Here in the U.S., everything is really based on people going out, buying things, going to events, uh, paying lots of money for nice looking clothes and, you know, experiences. And none of that is happening. So, this is a huge, huge hit to our economy, and it hits, one, the most important sector, but also, two, the sector that was really holding everything together because the trade war last year just really wrecked the manufacturing economy. I agree, and uh, that obviously set us up for you know the things that we're dealing with now. So let's turn to oil. And I know this is a little bit of a kind of a hot shot. Let's move to this, this, and that. But there is so much happening right now that you have to kind of touch on a lot of different things. So oil, uh, we saw that obviously WTI fell from the 50s and it has dropped like a lead shoe from the heavens. And, you know, we are dealing now with uh, some things that, again, using this word unprecedented, you know, we had in for the future contracts in May, uh, oil was negative. Um, something that I personally didn't even know could happen, but apparently just was something that could happen. The CME just allowed that to happen a little while ago. Um, but then we've had a flip where May has now gone positive, and we actually today, this is Thursday, um, we have seen that shift. And so it is now gone positive while June has reflected, and this might be have changed over the last three or four hours, but June had went negative. What do you think the market's saying out there right now in terms of oil? Is it you know purely because, again, hitting on that demand side, is it the demand 
unknown and thus the market is acting this way? It's yeah, it's demand and there's still too much supply. So you've had this sort of you know, misallocation for a while. And I've been talking to, to experts and oil traders and they've been saying, yeah, this thing is going to get worse before it gets better. There is an expectation that, you know, you talked about the June contract, the July contract, and on out through the end of the year, those contracts are all priced a lot better than the the ones in the near future because there's this expectation, okay, people will get out, they'll start driving again, they'll start, they'll start flying again, they'll start using oil. Uh, so there there is that. But really the the key, I think, to the whole oil question is going to be how much especially here in the U.S., do governments get involved and really act to stabilize and bail out the oil industry? Because I wrote about this uh, a week or two ago. Uh, Most oil companies can't survive with oil prices below $30 a barrel for WTI. That's the the U.S. crude. Uh, With oil at half that, I would assume you're looking at, you know, just the huge mega conglomerates are going to survive and everyone else kind of gets wiped out. And there's no sense that the price for WTI is going to go back to 30. Even the contract out to December, I think, isn't at $30 a barrel. So it's just, you know, they have to find some way to really cut back the supply, get the demand coming online, which requires getting this virus taken care of. There's there's not a lot of good news in the oil markets unless, like I said, you start getting some bailouts from governments, which I think a, a good number of people are, are expecting more printing from the Fed. And so let's talk about the Fed. So the Fed last week, and again, unprecedented, uh, that they were entering in to buy junk bonds. And there is whispers and noise out there that they could actually even go up the cap stack and start buying equity. Um, so does any of the data, any of the commentary, any of the conversations that you're hearing and having point to the Fed expanding that loan program that they ushered in about a week and a half ago? In a word, absolutely. Yeah, I think the the expectation is fully for the Fed to uh, do more. What more entails, um, you know, I don't think anyone knows right now. Uh, As you talked about, I think you brought this up earlier, the equity market has been acting, I, I would use this word as well, a bit irrationally. I think it's that same irrationality that we saw in early February when we were hitting these all-time highs. I think out to February 23rd was the most recent all-time high when coronavirus was known, when we had started seeing what was going on in China and it was understood, okay, this virus is gonna be bad. For some reason, uh, the stock market was still moving higher and it wasn't until we really started to get the calls for a global pandemic from WHO and you really started to see it hitting in the US that people finally realized, oh wait, no, this could be bad. And that, oh wait, no, this could be bad moment has just continued to get worse. But over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've seen the stock market really rise and improve. And I personally, as I'm watching this, I don't see any reason for it, except for getting back to your original question, expectations that the Fed is going to step in here and start to do a lot more. Uh, They've already stepped into the treasury market and you're seeing bond prices start to rise with yields falling. Um, They've already stepped in, as you said, to some of those fallen angels in the high yield market. 
there's, I don't think there's anyone out here who can say definitively the Fed will not buy stocks. I don't think there's anyone who would be willing to put money on the Fed not buying stocks. Um, I think the question is just how long can this stock rally, the, the BTFD stock rally, as I like to call it, uh, buy the effing dips, which was the Wall Street strategy over the past 10 years that was very, very successful and made a lot of people a lot of money and made a lot of people a lot of careers. Uh, how long can that continue? Because the fundamentals don't back it at all. I, I wrote about this uh, earlier this week. You've got expectations for Q1 earnings to be 15% below where they were uh, Q1 a year ago, but stocks are where they, were, where they were a year ago. How can you have equivalent stock prices when the earnings expectations are 15% lower? And that's right now. They've been dropping. They'll probably be lower than that. Uh, and the expectations for the economy are way worse or significantly worse, expecting a, an annual contraction in the U.S. and globally uh, like we haven't seen since the Great Depression. It makes no sense for stocks to be where they are, but people keep buying the dips as we're even seeing today on um, Thursday. I think we're headed for a positive close on the S&P for the mm -hmm. second day in a row. So it's, you know, it's a question of how long that can last. And once the, the reality of the situation, I think, does set in, uh, then, then we'll start to see some pretty significant drops. And then that really does start to beg the question, does the Fed step in? And there's no one I've talked to who will say to me, I feel very confident the Fed will not step in and do that. So you hit on that. He talked about the market and he said that the, obviously today, Thursday, the market is positive and it has been over the last week and a half or so, two weeks. You know, many, I actually put out a poll on Twitter about a week or two ago asking those out there if they thought this was a dead cat bounce. And most of them agreed with that. I think actually over 85% of the people who responded said yes, that this was a dead cat bounce. Um, and so as you alluded to, you know, a lot of the investors I have been talking to over the last week or two have anticipated that a second shoe would drop in Q2 when earnings started coming out. And as we're seeing, as you alluded to, I'm not seeing that necessarily happen. I haven't seen the fire and brimstone and the implosion, you know, that, you know, some of those out there have anticipated. And so is it purely, again, and I think you already hit on this, is it purely, do you think the market is as purely not fighting the Fed and that they, I think you just, you alluded to it already, you already kind of answered it. Is this all about the Fed buying and coming into the market? Or is there anything else out there that suggests that there are positives out there? For instance, Target, you know, just reported and they obviously had some profit issues, but like I alluded to, I, for one, am using their new subsidiary called Shipped, which allows me to order uh, groceries and other things whenever I get a time slot, which is very infrequent um, because everyone else in the world is doing that. But, you know, is it, do you think that there are other variables out there that are affecting this that are not causing this kind of second shoe to drop? So I think it's fourfold. Uh, I think there are four things, and I just kind of thought of a fourth one. So <laughs> that's why I said fourfold. But uh, the first one is the Fed, and, and I already talked about that, and you talked about that, and that's, I think, a big part of it. The second is expectations for more uh, government stimulus. I think we're expecting more fiscal stimulus. Uh, we got the CARES Act, $2.2 trillion. I think there will be at minimum two more bills of that size or larger. Um, likely we'll need another one kind of midway through to get us kind of just 
to get us through the crisis again. Um, there's already talks about that. CARES 2, uh, Electric Boogaloo uh, could be coming to, to a town near you. Wow. Um, and, and <laughs> but then also um, on the other side of this, if we do get to a place where we can confidently open up the economy and we've got the virus under control and those are big ifs, let's make sure and note that those are very big ifs. But if we get through that, then an actual stimulus bill to give people some money in their pocket to go out and feel confident spending on some things where they're going out, buying some things. Uh, obviously, I don't think anyone expects there will be concerts and football games and basketball games and things like that. But maybe you can reopen your, you know, your local clothing department store or something like that. And all that pent up demand from being stuck in your house, you want to go spend. Uh, the other thing that I think is kind of, it's very kind of in the weeds to the market, but the market has shifted from being a, you know, a market that's about actually things that are being sold to one that's about intellectual property and information technology. And Facebook's ability to still, you know, get to people, right? People still need Netflix. That stock has done amazingly well. Um, and they're, they're anticipating they're going to get more subscribers and make more money. Walmart has held up very well. Uh, you look at Costco, companies like that, Chipotle, um, those companies have done really well. And those, those tech companies, particularly I'm, look, I'm looking at uh, Apple, Google, those are, you know, they're certainly going to see some demand dry up from their advertisers, but they've been sitting on a pile of cash. They've got the, the money to work through this. And I think there is an expectation among folks in the market that they'll be all right. And, you know, once they weather the storm, maybe some of their competitors will get wiped out and they'll be able to grab even more market share and make even more money. Uh, same for companies like Facebook. So, you know, the our stock market is made up of a lot more big, huge behemoth companies now. And they've got the cash flow, at least in the markets, thinking to ride this out. So if you're sticking with large caps, if you're sticking with big names, there's this expectation that, you know, those make up the majority of the S&P now. And if those are okay coming out the, the other side of this, then the market will be okay. Um, I think that there's a bit of flaw in that logic. Again, you're going to see advertisers start to fall out. You're going to start to see people just not have the money to pay for some of these things that they were before because at the end of the day, the economy relies on people spending. But there is some thoughts about that, that that could be part of why the market's still going up. Yeah, those $1,200 checks are really going to fuel a lot of productivity on the consumer side for sure. Um, and that was a joke because... <laughs> I, that, did, I didn't want to say anything. I was yeah, like, I, is he being serious? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not. Um, but so, again, in CARES too, we could get $2,000 a month, right? right? And I think maybe that's the thinking there is, yeah, that $1,200 probably went quick, but if we get $2,000 a month uh, in perpetuity in CARES too, that does a whole lot more. And it's interesting too, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe uh, Congresswoman uh, Taleb is also talking about a trillion dollar digital coin of some sorts that would be used or printed. Yes. So obviously those two that are- Two trillion dollar coins actually. Two, two trillion, trillion dollar coins. Not just one. Yes. The, the folks on the digital asset community side that obviously I interface and I work with on a daily basis find that very interesting. Um, you know, the idea of a, you know, of a minted digital somewhat, you know, kind of- fiat currency out there, which is very, very interesting. Um, and so we'll talk about that at another time. I think the other thing that I wanted to hit on with you, um, 
since you kind of focus on new narratives and different narratives on a daily basis. And again, I highly recommend everyone to uh, subscribe to Dion's work. What other narratives out there, you know, we talked about farming, we talked about oil, we talked about the broad-based market, we talked about the demand side, we talked about the Fed. Is there anything else out there in the narrative side in this very complex web that people aren't really talking about yet, but you've been kind of keeping your eye on? Yeah, the big picture question that I'm looking at that I think is impossible to answer at this point uh, because there's so much still unknown, but what happens after all this is over? Because someone's going to be proven right and someone's going to be proven wrong. Um, I think you've got your MMT folks out there who have been pounding the table saying it doesn't matter how much money the government spends as you know, we've got our own currency they might be proven right. I think we're very clearly see, are they right or are they wrong? Uh, the gold bugs who have been saying the destruction of money through all this money printing is going to destroy fiat currency and you know in, invalidate the dollar, or devalue the dollar. We're going to see if they're right. Um, the traditional economists who say there's got to be some limit to how much you can really pump out into the economy before you do hit some inflation. Um, we're we're going to see if they're right. I, the all the theories about how money works and how the economy works and how those two things interact are going to be put to the test because we are going to spend probably like you've never spent before from not just the Fed. The Fed is probably, and not probably, the Fed has already done things it's never done before and is going to have to do even more. Uh, Congress and and the fiscal side of things are probably going to have to spend. Um, I've been saying since you know, the beginning of April, maybe mid-March, I think this is a $10, $20 trillion problem that they're going to have to really look at throwing money at. And uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin said the other day, this is a war, we have to win this war, and we're going to spend whatever it takes to win this war. So what are the consequences of that? Once we get to the other side of that, I think it's, it's really interesting, like, who was right? Uh, at this point, because I think we're going to very clearly see who was right and who was wrong. Yep. And I completely agree with you that one of the narratives that we talk about, especially is the destruction of fiat and the destruction of the value of fiat. Obviously, if we continue to print and print, where is that coming from? Who's paying for it? Where is it? You know, where in the end of the day, who is on the leash for that bill? And, you know, that is a very, very important question, which, of course, we don't have the answer to today, but one that one we will continue to monitor. The last thing that we'd like to do, Dion, before we let you go, and it's kind of a fun little part of the show, is to get to know our guest a little bit more on a personal level. There are two things that we hopefully get to enjoy while being in levels of quarantine and lockdown. One of them being reading, and hopefully you get a chance to read. I have a feeling you probably do because of all the analysis that you do. But anything that you've read recently on the book level uh, that really resonated with you and any music that you like? Ah, that's, that's a good question. And I wish I had gotten to read more books. Most of my reading these days is uh, coming from banks and and trying to see you know banks and economists what they what they expect i have cracked uh stephanie kelton's the deficit myth uh because she doesn't return my emails anymore if if you talk to stephanie please tell her to return my emails again (laughs) but um i no, i've cracked that book just because i'm really interested in trying to understand 
really the the MMT philosophy and what they're saying because, like I said, I, I think what we're going through right now is really going to test whether or not they're right. And I think in any other circumstance, you know, it would have been just a theory, and people could have, you know, felt how they wanted to feel one way or another. But we really are going to test that now. So, been trying to learn a bit more about that musically. Uh, just kind of what comes to mind. Um, I've been trying to catch up on, on what the kids are listening to these days, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> trying to follow whatever whatever Spotify puts on my playlist for the day. There has not been a whole lot of time for relaxation, listening to music, but, you know, just trying to trying to catch up on, on what's hot out there. So if anyone's got any suggestions, feel free to email me, dionadaxios.com. And if you sign up for the newsletter, that is my real actual email address. It comes from there every morning. And, uh, you know, when you reply, it does actually just come back to me in my inbox. I should have asked you what your favorite TikTok video is because I think that's what everyone everyone's finding a few minutes to do that. I, I'm guilty of that too. And so I am not learning the savage dance. So do not expect me to have any TikTok videos of the savage dance coming anytime soon. But Dion, thank you so much for joining us today. Hopefully we can catch up with you again in a few weeks or a few months whenever we get a chance because again, your insight and the the ability you have to bring multiple different facilities and kind of interdisciplinary kind of thought processes to the the markets and your work is great. Everyone, please sign up for that. We'll make sure we have a link to that in the, in the uh, liner notes for the show. Dion, thanks for coming on. Hopefully you stay safe and well. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And yeah, hopefully you and your family are staying safe as well. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on base layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space in the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, market commentary, videos, and more.